This is Scientific American Science Talk, posted on June 20th, 2020. I'm Steve Mursky. Three segments in this episode. We'll hear from Adam Levy in London about an unexpected lesson we might learn about air pollution from the corona pandemic. We'll also listen to a segment sponsored by the Kavli Prize with the new laureate in astrophysics, Andrew Fabian, who was honored for his pioneering research into how black holes influence their surrounding galaxies. But first, in July of 2017, we did an episode about the establishment late the year before of the Northeast Canyons and Seamounts Marine National Monument. This month, the Trump administration gutted the protections for that region. Here's a minute of that 2017 podcast in which Scott Krauss explains what the monument is. He's vice president and senior science advisor at the Anderson Cabot Center for Ocean Life at the New England Aquarium in Boston. The Northeast Canyons and Seamounts Marine National Monument encompasses a body of water and the submarine lands around three deep-sea canyons called Oceanographer, Lydonia, and Gilbert, and then uh, four seamounts, Bear, Physalia, Retriever, and Mytilus. If you were standing on Cape Cod and you were standing on, the, say, the southern point of Chatham and looking offshore, you would be looking over George's Bank. You'd be looking across the Great South Channel, and then you have George's Bank, and then sort of on the right-hand side of your view field, if you're looking at George's Bank, they're down there. They're a little bit to the south of the Cape and about 130 miles east. The proclamation under the Antiquities Act that made them a monument divided the monument into two sections. They are protected from things like uh, seabed mining, oil and gas drilling, most fisheries, but not all. Uh, they are some things like recreational fishing is allowed. On June 9th, in a reaction to the removal of the monument's protections, Miriam Goldstein wrote an opinion piece for the Boston Globe. Goldstein is Managing Director for Energy and Environment and the Director of Ocean Policy at the Center for American Progress. She has a doctorate in biological oceanography. We spoke about the monument and related issues about the health of our oceans that she touched upon in her opinion piece. What actually happened in the last few days regarding the monument? How were protections uh, removed and what can happen to it now? Right. So uh, President Trump issued a proclamation doing two things, which allowing commercial fishing in the monument immediately and also removing the sunset provisions that would have slowly phased it out, which because there technically actually was commercial fishing in the monument uh, happening. Um, it ha was just supposed to be phased out in another three years, I believe. So essentially, uh, he opened this National Marine Monument to commercial fishing. The reason that he did this was purportedly for economic benefits to Maine fishermen. Um, that is easily disproven by data. This monument is 150 miles or so southeast of Cape Cod. It's nowhere near Maine. And even before the monument was actually created, only six boats were identified that did a significant percentage of their fishing, not even all their fishing in the monument area, because this is really far away um, and uh, boat fuel is expensive. 
So it was never a heavily fished area, but it became because of the very challenging issue of how fisheries are uh, managed in New England. It became more of a cultural flashpoint than an actual economic issue. And so that is, I believe, how it probably came to the president's attention. And because he has been on a quest to undo everything that president, former President Obama did, he decided to leave his bunker when there was some trouble in D.C., go to Maine and uh, undo the monument. So the monument had not been uh, heavily fished in the first place. The fortunate thing about this is it probably won't make that much of a difference in terms of how many resources are extracted from the area. Is that correct? Well, yes and no. Will there be a gold rush of hundreds of boats flooding out there? Probably not. But will the boats that were fishing there and causing a lot of damage or potential damage return? Probably. And the problem with that is that this monument uh, was protected uh, because it is home to these very slow grow, very slow growing deep sea corals. They measure their lifetimes in the multiple thousands of years. They are extraordinarily slow growing and ancient, and they are not able to stand up to, for example, getting whacked with a lobster pot or getting tangled up in line. So it doesn't take a lot of uh, that kind of contact to really damage those corals. And once they are damaged and removed, they will never come back in any reasonable amount of time. So it's not really about just the sheer number. It's about what is happening on the bottom. So by the time they regenerated, a whole different civilization could be existing on the earth uh, in terms of humans anyway. Right. It would not happen in, you know, our civilization's time span. Um, Or maybe the future squid archaeologists will be wondering what happened to us (laughs) by that time. Right. Um, so you think this was mostly optics. This was a, a bone that he was throwing at certain economic uh, quarters who would see this as a, like a cultural victory? Yes. I, there's no economic evidence. The, there, the Trump administration's own economic analysis, which they accidentally released in some papers and from the Department of Interior, showed that there would be pretty much no economic benefit from opening the monument to commercial fishing. They basically could not include, they were trying to come up with an economic analysis to open the monument, and there was so little economic benefit that they could not use commercial fishing as a reason. So it really is more of a cultural statement of undoing something that President Obama did and the latest challenging cultural issue in the New England fisheries saga. And there is evidence, based on uh, my conversation with Scott Krause three years ago, that there would be economic benefit to fisheries by allowing the monument to stand in that uh, various uh, species, with the notable exception of cod, which is always uh, a flashpoint, but various other species would have a chance to regenerate and the fishery would grow stronger. Yes, there's lots of evidence for the benefits of what are called highly to fully protected marine protected areas. Those are areas that prohibit all industrial extraction. So oil and gas, uh, mining and uh, commercial fishing. 
And there's evidence from all over the world on that these work quite well when done properly and thoughtfully to regenerate and replenish fisheries. But we don't actually need to look that far. The West Coast also had a crisis in their ground fish fishery, um, which is to say the fish that live on the bottom, like cod and haddock on the east and the on the West Coast, it's rockfish. They had a same crisis and actually their fish were even, were even more challenging to regenerate because they're very long lived and have to be kind of old before they reproduce, unlike cod, which are very good at reproducing. So, but the West Coast actually set aside habitat areas in different ways for these rockfish to regenerate. Um, it was not easy and a lot of people made a lot of sacrifices, but as of last year, they rebuilt their rockfish fishery and it opened back up. Um, so they, they did it. And uh, it has been one of the saddest and most tragic things about the New England story that New England has not been able to do that with the cod or with the yellowtail flounder. There's been literal books written about the New England cod fishery. I think David Dobbs uh, is the best. Who he wrote about it for the, the, the sort of most recent and most major crash in the early nineties. But it, now it's going to be even more challenging because of the Gulf of Maine is warming really fast. It's warming faster than 99% of the rest of the ocean. And unless this trajectory is changed through massive global action, the Gulf of Maine in 20 years is going to look extremely different than the Gulf of Maine looks now. Even now, black sea bass, for example, which were a mainstay of commercial fisheries in the mid-Atlantic, but were never much in New England, are now increasingly showing up in New England and are no longer much in the mid-Atlantic. And this causes chaos in our fisheries management system. We're not, we're there, right now, there's not really good mechanisms for adapting to that. Same thing for the northern shrimp fishery. Uh, a lot of people in Maine really depended on that fishery to have income all year round, but those shrimp have moved to Canada and the U.S. fishery is more or less permanently closed because there are simply no more shrimp in U.S. waters. And the lobster fishery is on the move. Lobster fishery is on the move. Like Right now, there are a lot of lobster in Maine. Maine is sort of the epicenter, but they're moving north. I mean, you probably remember, and I remember... Uh, there used to be a thriving lobster fishery in southern New England in Long Island Sound. That was a thing that existed. It even existed. I mean, <laughs> I'm not even 40, and I remember the lobster fishery of Narragansett Bay uh, in Rhode Island. And that's all for that's vastly reduced now. Their lobster fishery of southern New England is the, almost entirely gone because the lobster are in Maine. But those lobster are not stopping in Maine. Um, they will continue to go north. Um, and that's not even taking into account the other evil twin of climate change, which is ocean acidification. Uh, so as there's more carbon in the atmosphere, more carbon goes into the ocean and actually makes the water more acidic, which makes it harder for most sea animals to form their shells, including lobster, mussels, you know, oysters, all that stuff. So we also are seeing that happen. Um, right now in the ocean, uh, even right now, uh, facility aquaculture facilities that grow oysters and clams have to actually make their water more basic in order for their clams and oysters to grow up. Um, so it's already happening. Right. Anybody who uh, wants to see that in fast motion, you can just pour some water on some limestone is, and you'll get the, uh, the fizzing and that's, 
that's a, uh, a shorthand uh, way to look at why the shells don't have their structural integrity. Is that right? That's exactly right. Um, so I'm not saying that the, the ocean will not become like, you know, an acid bath, but the fact that it's becoming more acidic sort of puts it over a tipping point for those animals that need to form shells in, uh, in the ocean. It's, it really starts when they're, you know, forming and when they're small, they can't do those chemical reactions that they need. Let's go now from the deep sea to deep space with a segment sponsored by the Kavli Prize. Black holes. They're among the most exotic and mysterious objects in the universe because nothing escapes them, not even light. But that doesn't mean black holes can't be seen. But immediately around some of them, where there's matter that's trying to fall into them, they're amongst the brightest parts of the universe. That's Andrew Fabian of the Institute of Astronomy at the University of Cambridge. In May, Fabian was awarded the Kavli Prize in Astrophysics for developing powerful new methods that use X-rays to explore the most extreme environments in the universe, from the luminous precipice that surrounds supermassive black holes to the flow of gases that drives galactic evolution. On the eve of his receiving this award, Scientific American Custom Media, in partnership with the Kavli Prize, chatted with Fabian about the life cycle of galaxies, the belly of a black hole, and using the light of quasars to expose the secrets of dark matter. But first... How can Fabian see a black hole? Black holes are enormous sources of energy in the universe. And that is because material falls into the black hole. And as it does so, it goes faster. And if it collides, those collisions can take kinetic energy and turn it into radiation. That radiation can push the gas right out of the galaxy in which the black hole sits. It's gas that is going to lead to new stars. Black holes can stop the galaxy from forming new stars. There can be ways in which stars can form in the outflow, which can then change the shape of the galaxy. And this may not happen just once in a galaxy. It can happen many times during its evolution. So in terms of the life cycle of a galaxy, it can well be that the black hole at the centre plays a major part in how the galaxy evolves. To see how black holes might set up these cycles of star formation, Fabian says researchers need to look at very young, very distant galaxies, which would require larger instruments to gather more X-rays from even fainter sources. With the best telescopes at the moment, looking at the very brightest objects with very long exposure times, sometimes we see that only a few X-rays per hour to understand these processes in greater detail, we have to get much larger telescopes. That data could also reveal how and when, during the evolution of galaxies, black holes form. All massive galaxies have got black holes at the centre as far as we can tell. We don't know how the first black holes formed and we don't know where they formed. That's something that will probably be sorted out over the next couple of decades by telescopes which can actually start to see the first stars and also the first black holes. But even those improved instruments won't reveal what goes on inside that black hole. Matter, as it's falling in, passes through what we call the event horizon. We on the outside can't see within the event horizon because of the way that space-time itself is warped around a black hole. If you threw a clock into a black hole, the clock would appear to slow down and never get there because time slows down as you get closer and closer, because it only emits a finite number of photons. 
it rapidly goes black as it falls in until you see nothing at all. And at the very centre, the so-called singularity, all bets are off. A singularity is just a polite word for the bit we don't understand because it has all the mass of the black hole in an infinitely small size. There's talk about how if you have a spinning black hole, then the singularity is actually a ring. And you can also have a wormhole connecting you to another universe. But Fabian says we're not likely to find other universes anytime soon. If there are other universes, they're in other dimensions. But I'm very much grounded in observations, and I see no way at the moment to discern whether there are other dimensions. So these are interesting questions, but I can see no way to actually test it. One thing Fabian is trying to test is whether X-rays can shed light on the identity of dark matter, without which galaxies would never have formed in the first place. I personally am on the side of people who think it's some sort of particle, but it's not a particle that we know of. Fabian and his colleague Chris Reynolds are currently betting on axions. An axion, which may exist, may not exist, is a particle that's got a very weak interaction with ordinary matter. It was introduced decades ago to solve a problem in physics. It was called an axion because there's a detergent called axion, and basically this cleaned away a problem in physics. Folks trying to detect axions, which are related to the photons that make up light, think that strong magnetic fields can turn photons into axions and back again. What we're doing is using the quasar at the centre of NGC 1275, essentially is the backlight and seeing if some of the light turns into axions as it goes through the magnetic fields in the cluster. So far, we've not seen any effect that we can attribute to axions. But he enjoys having another mystery to solve. This is something fundamental. There's much more dark matter around in the universe than there is ordinary matter. But I actually find it really exciting that there are things out there that we know exist, but we don't understand them. This podcast was made possible through the support of the Kavli Prize. The Kavli Prize recognizes scientists for pioneering advances in the fields of astrophysics, nanoscience, and neuroscience. The Kavli Prize is a partnership among the Norwegian Academy of Science and Letters, the Norwegian Ministry of Education and Research, and the U.S.-based Kavli Foundation. Andrew Fabian is from the Institute of Astronomy at Cambridge University. Now over to London, where Adam Levy has been looking up in the air. I don't need to tell you that COVID-19 has disrupted daily life across the globe. These changes are offering new insights into how humans impact the world around us. And right now, climate scientists are hoping to answer one of the biggest outstanding questions of the field. As problematic as this ongoing situation is, it, it is going to be, I think, a very interesting case study. I'm hoping that we are going to learn from it, as horrible as it is. Atmospheric scientist Trude Storelvmor of the University of Oslo in Norway. As air pollution drops around the world, researchers are catching a glimpse at how aerosol emissions affect climate. These tiny particles and droplets are emitted by everything from farming to fossil fuel burning, and as human activity is slowed down, far fewer aerosols are being produced. Researchers like Trudaire are hoping to use this unplanned experiment to learn about the climate impacts of aerosols. I think everyone was sort of in a state of shock and adapting to the new situation. You know, it's not something that we were expecting or prepared for. If someone had asked us, you know, in December, we, <laughs> no one would have dreamed of something like this happening. 
Climate researchers know that aerosol emissions cool the climate overall by blocking sunlight and promoting cloud formation. That means they offset some of the warming caused by carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases. But the question is, just how much warming have they prevented? Because aerosols and their effects are so varied, this question has proved pretty challenging to answer. If climate scientists could figure out the aerosol effect, it would help them pin down how sensitive the planet is to CO2. And that information in turn would allow for better climate predictions. The fact that the, the aerosol forcing, the aerosol effect on climate so far is so uncertain has kind of held us back in climate research. So it's really been this really uncertain contribution to the warming that we've seen so far that sort of makes it difficult to say what we can expect going forward. One reason it's so hard to understand the impacts of aerosols is that you can't just look at the planet with and without them. But the scramble to contain the novel coronavirus has effectively provided the control experiment by greatly reducing emissions in regions around the world. And it's not just Trudeau who's hoping to learn from this. If this goes on, one pretty damn sure prediction that I can make is that we will see a lot of scientific papers on this over the coming years. Climate scientist Björn Samset of the Centre for International Climate Research in Norway. Björn is one of the researchers hoping to gauge the differences that have arisen since emissions dropped. Aerosols can come from natural sources too, from ocean spray to pollen. And one of the most fundamental questions researchers hope to answer is just how much human activities contribute to the aerosols we find in the atmosphere. No one has put a measuring device on every smokestack, every car, every forest fire. Uh, I mean, that is really hard to pin down just how much is there staying aloft. So, so the first question is really just how much is there? That's, that's a difficult question. But looking for changes in aerosol concentrations is just the beginning. As I mentioned earlier, aerosols cool the planet by intercepting sunlight and promoting longer-lasting, more reflective clouds. But the physical processes that underpin these cloud effects are especially uncertain. If researchers can spot weather changes during our current air pollution reductions, they might learn a lot about the role of these tiny particles. In principle, you should be able to see, first of all, a reduction in the aerosol cooling around where they're emitted, and you should maybe even be able to see an effect on the clouds. But note that I'm always saying should here, because in reality, even for a big experiment like this one, uh, I think everyone expects that this will be extremely challenging thing to see in practice. Extremely challenging because weather is so variable, and so it will be hard to spot a clear pattern unless emissions reductions continue for a long time. But if 2020 can teach researchers new lessons about the effects of aerosols, they could potentially build better computer simulations of the climate. If you really collected all relevant observations and there was a clear signal you would also um, want to try to reproduce that signal with models. And it would be a very, very good test for our models to see if they can reproduce what was observed. Better computer models of climate change could mean better predictions of the planet's future. And while that won't help protect us from the coronavirus pandemic, it might help us prepare for the longer term threat, climate change. Information is something that we sorely need once we go into this territory of trying to reduce our industrial impact. So this is about understanding the climate risk of the future. That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com. 
where all of our coronavirus coverage is out from behind the paywall, available free. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.